For a long time, it seemed to me that real life was about to begin. But there was always some obstacle in the way. Something had to be got through first. Some unfinished business. Time still to be served. A debt to be paid. Then life would begin. At last, it dawned on me that these obstacles were my life. Bet Howard. This is the last episode of Radical Existence in the year 2020. Did I get ya? I am so proud to have started this project in the midst of total uncertainty, and I hope that this podcast has and will continue to support nourishing thoughts, ideas, and topics as you continue your radical journey into truth. 2020, what can we say? The year of global pandemic, complete chaos, hand sanitizer, toilet paper outages, a strong push for social justice, and of course, the death of one of the most radical women of our time, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A hero, a game changer, a way paver. She dedicated her life to women's rights and equality for all people. We, the people. Today, we honor and celebrate the life of the late justice, the notorious RBG. I want to be remembered as someone who used whatever talent she had to do her work to the very best of her ability and to help repair tears in her society to make things a little better through the use of whatever ability she has. That's a quote by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Ruth, that is exactly how we'll be remembering you today. In preparing to record this episode, I knew I wanted to focus on her professional accomplishments, or the repairs to the tears in society as she refers to them. But I have to say, I'm equally inspired by her story, personal life, and demeanor as I am her professional accomplishments. This quote is the perfect blueprint for sharing about the life, accomplishments, and quirks of RBG. I hope I can do the justice, justice. To study up for this podcast, I used a few different sources. Um, I used the audible version of her book, In My Own Words, written by, of course, herself, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, along with Mary Hartnett and Wendy W. Williams. I also watched the RBG documentary directed by Julie Cohen and Betsy West. And um, of course, I did watch The Basis of Sex when it came out, but I didn't watch it in preparation for this podcast. But I still highly recommend it if you're looking for a good movie to watch. Uh, And that's written by Daniel Siepelman. And then uh, countless other YouTube interviews and just, yeah, things that have been recorded over time because obviously the justice was a public figure. So it was not hard to find, um, find things to inform me about her life. All right. So the notorious RBG was born in Brooklyn, New York, March 15th, 1933. She uh, was originally born Joan Ruth Bader, but I think well, from what I remember, there was more than one Joan in her class. There was maybe a Joan and a Joni, so she ended up going by her second name, Ruth, and clearly it stuck. Uh, she was the second born. Her older sister passed away when Ruth was only 14 months old, 
And then other early childhood uh, kind of trauma. Her mother also passed away the day before her high school graduation. So she ended up missing her high school graduation because of her mother's death. She was always academically inclined. She ended up going to Cornell for her um, bachelor's degree, and that's where she met her husband, Marty. And they have just the most magnificent marriage and story. Apparently it was, uh, quote-unquote, a blind date, but he had done some research before, and I think he had seen a picture of her or had figured out who she was before she knew who he was. And um, as she goes on to say... He was the first man that recognized her for her brain. So um, they just had a really lovely marriage, and we'll talk more about that later. Anyway, shortly after they graduate Cornell, they get married. She also gets pregnant, um, either right before Harvard or in the first year of Harvard. Uh, They transferred to Harvard Law School, and... She remembers having to make a decision, you know, do I continue on with law or do I stop and raise a family? And her father encouraged her to continue with her studies, even though they were uh, a newly married couple and a young family. So a very good thing that he um, pushed her to do so. Marty, her husband, got sick during the time that I believe it's when they were at Harvard. They also transferred to Columbia, and that's where she ended up graduating. But I believe it was when they were at Harvard that he got sick. And so she wasn't just um, doing her own classes and one of nine women at Harvard, but she was also helping Marty. She was retyping his notes and making sure that his work got done and taking care of their young daughter. So quite an extraordinary um, woman to be managing all that at that time. And to go back again, I believe it was at Harvard. I wish I would have taken more notes now, but it's noted that her being one of nine in the class, the the dean holds a dinner for, for the women of of the class. And he says to the women straight out, why are you taking these seats when they could go to men? And the normal reaction or the reaction on a lot of the documentaries was, how rude, how rude for the dean to ask that, you know, it's um, completely, it's not right to say something like that. But really for the time, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, he was just asking, we we know that women's and women's roles, generally speaking, are to be in the house and to raise a family. And eventually, ladies, the chances are, at least as me, the old dean of Harvard, you know, knows and has seen in my lifetime, that you'll get your degree, but then eventually you're going to stop working and raise your family. And Because these women were such way pavers, I think that's the perfect way to describe them, they had to see a new future, even though it had never been shown to them or proven to them. And so I don't think it was that outrageous for the dean to make that statement. I just think the outrageous act was these nine women, especially RVG being who were celebrating that they could see a new future that had never existed before. Their their dream was that strong against all the odds. 
And speaking of way pavers, uh, just a little side note about the first female to be nominated and elected to the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor, when she was first entering the the workforce, she had to work. I It was a short period of time, maybe a few months, which is really not that short of a time, but not paid. She said, I'll volunteer my time and work. And then if you think I'm worthy that I hold my, I can hold my own in the office, then you'll start paying me. And, um, no doubt that in what it would be around the fifties, sixties, no doubt that it was, uh, less pay than what her, um, fellow male colleagues were being paid. Of course, after graduation, RBG had trouble finding work. There was lots of discrimination, gender discrimination. She ended up working for a judge for a while and then taught at Rutgers University in New Jersey uh, and became the first female tenured professor. Uh, During the 1970s, she served as a director of the Women's Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. She at that time, argued six cases that had to do with gender equality, winning five out of the six. And she talks about her experience in front of the Supreme Court at that time and saying how in some ways it felt like teaching kindergarten. And it really, it makes sense. You know, you have these men, uh, these justices that are making judgments and rulings based on tangible evidence. And I don't mean within the cases, I just mean how this was the way society was structured. And again, what Ruth was fighting for was something unseen. So in ways, the justices are, it's almost like their minds are being opened up to something they had never thought possible because really um, probably wasn't, it didn't affect them that much. And even though it would maybe affect their granddaughters, I think at that time, their dream for their granddaughters was probably to become loving wives and mothers. So the you're going to hear me say this point over and over again, but what is so radical to me is to see a future that has never been proven. I mean, you know, she's kind of leading herself into the dark and knows that step by step things will become more equal and more just, but she has to just keep following this vision without tangible proof. And obviously we saw that in the civil rights movement and we're still seeing that today. Um, one point I wanted to mention that when she was arguing those six cases in front of the Supreme Court when she was a part of the ACLU was she strategized and borrowed strategies from the civil rights movement, which was um, one of the cases that they focused on um, quite a bit, or at least I think they focused on it on the basis of sex. That movie was she fought for the rights of a man to get money for being a a widower or a widow, a widower, um, because at the time men wouldn't receive money if their partner died. And what he wanted to do was to take care of his aging mother and his uh, child. I don't remember if he had a son or a daughter, but he wanted to stay home and take care of his family. And there was no financial protection for a man that wanted to or that needed to play that role for his family when the other partner passed on. 
But as a woman, you could receive these, uh, like this social security or these um, support from the government. So she used this man that the obviously the justices could relate to. Oh, if that were me and my wife died, what would I do? And famously, that was a strategy that uh, worked in civil rights as well. Okay, so we're getting closer to her being appointed to the Supreme Court in 93 by President Bill Clinton. But before that, we are going to talk about her husband, Marty, because it wouldn't have happened without Marty. He sounds, from her descriptions and little clips that I got to hear uh, on during the audiobook and um, other YouTubes I saw, he just seems like he was the life of the party, a fun-loving guy, really charismatic, just lighthearted, kind of maybe silly a little bit, which is the total opposite of her. She's more reserved and quiet and obviously very focused on uh, work and her career. So they made a good partnership. I think the first thing to be noted is that he was willing and um, to be the husband that was at home taking care of the kids and cooking and uh, putting his career to the side in a way. I mean, he was still a tax lawyer in New York, so it's not that he had a bad career by any means, but he was willing to to take the backseat in order for her to be so successful in her endeavors and career, which is something to be noted again for the times that wasn't something that happened and that happened often. Along with that, it's, um, he loved her because of that, not in spite of that, which you hear that saying quite often, but it really makes a difference. He loved how he loved who she was through and through Even if that meant going to her office at 7 p.m. and dragging her home to eat dinner to, you know, you have to come home, you have to go to sleep, kind of helping her to keep somewhat of a, a schedule, he understood that she was changing the world and respected and loved that about her. There's a joke I have to share with you. I heard it both on the documentary and in the audiobook that I listened to, and I Ruth and Marty had gone to a production of Proof in New York, and I guess they were walking back to their seats after the intermission, and the crowd started to applaud. And Marty turns to Ruth and says, I bet you didn't know that there was a tax lawyer's convention in town. Um, Him being a tax lawyer, you know, and thinking that the applause was for him or joking that the applause was for him, just in case you didn't follow that. Anyway, so he had that kind of personality and they had that kind of partnership. So speaking of partnership, when it came time for Clinton to fill the seat of Justice Byron White, that's the seat that Ruth took over. uh, There was quite a few contenders, you know, Ruth wasn't the only one. And just to generalize it, as the story goes... Marty made calls. He talked to his friends. He talked to his connections and really helped to get Ruth's name to um, the front of the line or to get her some more attention that maybe she wouldn't have invited herself, just her being such a reserved person. Um, He really helped with her getting into this, this role. And I just think that goes, and I don't want to take the work away from her, of course. She did quite the job of getting there on her own, but he did, he helped with the networking and the connections and maybe the things that she 
doesn't have such a strong strength towards. And I, I just love that story so much because it shows the kind of true partnership that they had. I mean, they really supported each other through their lives, both uh, professionally and just they had a really good yin and yang kind of quality. And um, I guess it's just something that it seems almost rare to see relationships like that now. So to hear about this wonderful marriage that she had, it was just such a beautiful thing to learn about. So that started her 27-year career as a justice uh, on the Supreme Court. There are two things that stood out um, continuously through my my research. The first is she talked about uh, collegiality. So having a strong bond with her colleagues, she talked about how everyone in the morning would shake each other's hands. And for those mathematically inclined, that's 36 handshakes. Um, She talked about how they would all eat lunch together day after day and share stories about their family, their grandchildren, the latest opera or theater that they saw, but that they all had a pretty close bond. And that's something I believe that she really attributed the the success of the court in itself too is that everyone had and held that that bond. The second thing that came up as it seemed almost like an RBG rule was something that her mother said. And just to remind you, her mom again died in her senior year of high school, end of high school. So something that she took with her her whole life, which was to I believe the phrasing was act like a lady, which is so ironic when you think about uh, Ruth's journey. But what her mom meant by that was don't react emotionally. Try to take anger and yelling and screaming out of any argument and really keep your calm, keep your cool and aim for coming to an agreement and understanding. So those are the golden rules of RBG, according to me, uh, collegiality and keep your cool. Once appointed to the court, she really landed somewhere in the middle as far as being more liberal or conservative. She voted somewhere in the middle. And then, of course, during her later days, we know that the court started to uh, get heavy on the right side and she uh, eventually kind of landed more towards the liberal or the left side, which brings us to um, dissents. So something that she's very famous for in her later days is uh, respectfully dissenting from the court's majority opinion. And why this is so important, and this is something I learned through this research, is that The public dissents can inform Congress and can also inform the future. So even if the ruling didn't go in her favor or whichever justice is dissenting, that they can then speak their piece on record where we can refer back to it. And uh, one case that this really stuck out to me, there's a few, but just one of them is the case with General Motors and a woman who had been paid significantly less than her uh, equal male colleagues. And I guess when it hit the Supreme Court, it was too late. It had timed out and couldn't be 
um, taken care of. She couldn't get the money that she was owed. But RBG made this public dissent and, you know, said, I hope Congress will do something about this. And Congress ended up changing or passing a law that allowed this woman to, um, again, be paid what she was worth. And so they do have the ability to influence the law and certain outcomes, even if it's not for that particular case. There's a uh, famous dissent by Justice Scalia, which is one of RBG's unlikely friends on the court. They were good friends for many years, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, But that is very relative to today. So the case is Morrison versus Olson, and uh, it turns out with the, the public dissent that he made that he may have had more insight into the future problems of not passing this ruling in a specific way. So if you're interested in uh, researching that, Morrison versus Olson, uh, the descent of Scalia. So Scalia was one of uh, RBG's, again, good friends and an unlikely friend. He's a very conservative justice, and she obviously is not so. But somehow these two became again, the most unlikely of friends. And I bring this up because they were so well known as kind of like the odd couple that um, a a student at uh, a music school, Derek Wang, wrote an operetta about Scalia and um, Ginsburg. And it's called We Are Different, We Are One. And it is definitely worth a good YouTube session. There's a TED Talk by Derek Wang about this operetta. And then you can see some of the the songs and music performed. So uh, I'll leave a link in the show notes for you to check that out. Why this friendship is so remarkable, though, especially nowadays, is that these two had such polar opposite political views. And I think that really did capture kind of the the hearts and um, bystanders did that kind of like, you know how the dogs tilt their head to the side and they're like, huh? I think a lot of us, you know, are like, how could you guys be such great friends but be so politically different? And um, it's it goes to show that we can have separate political beliefs but still come together and find love for each other. And I think that's a really important message for the end of 2020. And as we enter into 2021, um, if we can use their example and despite being, you know, completely split politically nowadays, that we can still come together, respect each other and find friendship and love. I believe it was an interview with Scalia where he said, um, there is no one else that I would rather spend a New Year's Eve with referring to, of course, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so considering it is New Year's Eve 2020, I will um, most definitely be sending a prayer and a clink of my glass to an unlikely friendship and such a wonderful example, something that we need to remember and honor uh, with the the changing times. Okay, so One more thing we've got to talk about is RBG's um, 
health habits. <laughs> so we know that she went to the gym, uh, I think it was like four times a week. She had a personal trainer and was known for doing 20 full push-ups along with, you know, and other weight-bearing um, strength training exercises with her personal trainer. But you guys, this woman did not sleep. <laughs> That's one of the things that I am so shocked to learn is you know, she didn't keep like a standard bedtime and wake up early and greet the day with or greet the sun and the day. She would work from, you know, late morning, like 9, 10 a.m. through the day, through the night till sometimes 2, 3, 4 in the morning, get a couple hours sleep and go back to work. This woman was dedicated to her work. And if we can go back to the quote that we started this podcast out with, um, and it's her and her words saying she wanted to be remembered as someone who used whatever talent she had to do her work to the very best of her ability and to help repair tears in her society to make things a little better through the use of whatever ability she had mission accomplished. She had a loving husband relationship. She had wonderful friendships. She made significant dents in history. The world is a different place because of her existence. So while I'm anxious to see 2020 on its way, um, I want to use this evening to remember and celebrate the life of such a, a wonderful, radical, and an impactful person as um, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thank you guys so much for joining me as we uh, celebrated this radical woman. Um, if you are interested, the book again that I listened to on Audible was called In My Own Words, and it was uh, written, of course, by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and then along with Mary Hartnett and Wendy W. Williams. And I really want to put in a, uh, a recommendation that you listen to it on Audible, because it is uh, not only do you get all of the... Um, yummy facts and inspiration from studying RBG, but there are also clips of her, um, you know, her speeches and of her husband's interviews and of Scalia and of the opera I mentioned. So it really is an enjoyable listening experience. It's almost like listening to a play because they have um, broken up and inserted the material where uh, where necessary. So I really found it to be an enter, a fulfilling, entertaining experience, as well as, um, of course, research for this podcast. And speaking of the podcast, first, I want to thank you for listening. Hopefully you are a subscriber. If not, make sure that you do subscribe. And if you wouldn't mind leaving a five-star rating, that would be fantastic. And maybe even a comment about what you're enjoying uh, with listening to Radical Existence. So to give you an idea of where I see Radical Existence, this podcast going into 2021, is uh, introducing still uh, radical women, reads, people that are in my inner circle. I have an artist coming on um, in the coming weeks that I'm very excited to introduce my radical existence world to. But I also see this linking up to some of the work I've been doing. I'm a holistic nutritionist and 
yogi, Pilates teacher, but mostly curious about um, how to live the most radical existence. And when I say radical, I don't mean um, punk rock radical. I mean really uh, uncovering our truth and um, getting rid of the the layers that are no longer necessary and really discovering a, a life well-lived. So we know that RVG lived the most impressive life and it wasn't, it was based on what she believed to be important and true for her, uh, meaning things like getting a good night's sleep, making sure she was in bed by 9.30 and up by 5.30, you know, those wellness rules that we hear about so often. Um, she really led this radical existence because she led with her heart and passion and um, her vision for the future of the world. And I think if we lived more from that radical place and less from rules that have maybe been imposed on us that don't agree with our um, individual nature, then we aren't getting into a place of wholeness, but rather just following along with um, just another crowd. So what I'm hoping to do is to explore those ideas with you and using this podcast as um, part of that exploration. So if you're someone that tends to live, uh, you know, go against the grain and really likes to define what is for yourself, what's right for yourself, then um, I hope that you'll join me or continue to join me on this journey. All right. I would love to hear from you. You can check out my website. It's www.radicalexistence.com. Or you can head to Instagram and I'm under the handle at Radical Existence. All right, you guys, thanks for being here and happy new year. (laughs) 